following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Psalm 134, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Luann. Well, good morning. My name is Neil. I serve as one of the, the pastors here at Park. And um, we are, we're in the, the final psalm of the Songs of Ascent. Uh, so there's 15 of them. This is the final one. And we'll, we'll look at it, but it's kind of where, this is where arrival takes place. Like, move into the presence of God, come before uh, where God has, has brought his presence near. And so we, we did do less singing on the front end, uh, so we could do more on the tail end. And so I did, what, two, two and a half songs on the front end. We're going to have some more time um, toward the end. Uh, to respond. This whole psalm is about blessing the, the Lord, receiving his blessing and responding um, in blessing him. And so uh, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll get into this psalm together. Uh, Father, thank you that you are uh, the God who blesses your people. Uh, that you didn't survey the landscape of humanity and say, oh, there, there's something there that, that's blessable <laughs> that I need to, uh, to go give of myself to, uh, but rather you, you saw our deficiency, you saw our need, you saw our dependence upon you, and you responded in your mercy to draw near to us, to attend to our needs, to save us uh, by bringing us near to yourself. Uh, not because of our own work, but because of yours. And so I ask that, that you, you would make us a, a people marked by blessing, uh, that, that receive with humility what you've given to us and then respond in our lives of recognizing the God who is, that, that our lives are more and more together individually as we go throughout this city and our, our days and our weeks. We could be the kind of people whose lives are marked by the blessing of our present God. Uh, so, Spirit, please come. Please awaken us in places that we're sleepy, uh, things that we're, we're, we're carrying in this morning, um, the, the heaviness of life, the discouragement, uh, the, the joys, the excitement of the upcoming week, whatever mix that we're feeling right now. Um, yeah, I ask that, that we would not try to set those things aside, but actually offer those up to you, or that we would allow your word to... Uh, to, to work its way through our soul and spirit, you would, you would testify to who God is and, and, and to, uh, to, you know, to bring his voice to bear in the particular areas that we need it. We cannot do that on our own. We, we need you to, to illuminate our minds, to, to stir our affections, to see what we don't see, and to usher us into this life marked by the blessing of the Lord in Jesus. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I feel as though commercials, advertising, uh, those can be so telling of our culture. Um, we used to play a game when I was a kid, and we, a commercial would come on, you know, a 30-second commercial or whatever it is, and it's like, who, who's the first one to guess what business put out that ad? You know, a lot of times, it's, like, it's, it's that whole philosophy of appealing but not relevant, like re irrelevant but appealing or whatever. It's like, hey, let's just do something that kind of attracts attention even if it doesn't really have anything to do with the product or the service that we provide. Uh, maybe one of my favorites was in 2007, 
Um, you just get this close-up of a, of a gorilla's face. And the gorilla is like looking kind of sentimental and, you know, you know, just like focused. And then you get this Phil Collins song come on in the background. And then you see slowly that the gorilla begins just like drumming to the beat to Phil Collins. And 27 of the 30 seconds of this commercial is a gorilla drumming to a sentimental Phil Collins song. And by the end, you see, oh, of course, it's, uh, it's for Cadbury chocolate. Um, that you just have, you know, Cadbury symbol on the side. Uh, but, I, but I feel like a lot of other commercials are much more relevant and probably much more telling of our culture. Uh, a few years ago, a fitness chain came out with a new series of, of ads and kind of a marketing campaign. It was, it was titled, Make Yourself a Gift to the World. Make Yourself a Gift to the World. As a fitness chain, and so it's kind of like adopt our program, our philosophy, and you will increasingly become this gift uh, that we all think you should be to the world. Uh, and they're, they're commercial. They have a longer form commercial. And it's, it's retelling the story of Narcissus. I don't know if you guys know, remember the, the Greek demigod Narcissus who was so enthralled with his appearance that he began looking at his reflection in a pond and was so taken by what he looked like that he couldn't, he couldn't pull his gaze away, and eventually he'd, he fell in and drowned. But of course, they, they want to retell this story. And so they, they have this, this guy depicted as narcissist who's looking at himself and kind of like, wow, I, I look really good. And you just kind of, he's taken with his own reflection. But they turn that, and, and, it, and it becomes, he becomes this like do-gooder in society where like children are flocking to him and he's like telling them stories and then he's like tending to the poor over here. And it's like, oh, once you become more self-obsessed, that's what turns into a gift to the world. In fact, they, they said in the commercial, he became a gift not just for himself to treasure, but a gift that brought the whole world pleasure. Does that not make self-obsession the most selfless act of all? I think this characterizes so much of the, the running sentiment in our culture. It, the call is to, to look within yourself, like recognize what's already there, what you have to provide, and as you kind of curate that, that's going to spill over into blessings for others. I think um, social commentator Tara Isabel, Isabella Burton says it really well. Our cultural moment, in the contemporary English-speaking world at least, is one in which we are increasingly called to be self-creators. People who yearn not just to make ourselves a gift to the world, but to make ourselves, period. At the core of this collective project of self-creation lies one vital assumption, that who we are, deep down at our most fundamental level, is who we most want to be. Our desires, our longings, our yearnings to become or to acquire or to be seen a certain way, these are the truest and most honest parts of ourselves. Where and how we were born, the names, expectations, and assumptions laid upon us by our parents, our communities, and our society at large, all these are at best incidental to who we really are. At worst, actively inimical to our personal development. It is only by looking inward, by investigating, cultivating, and curating our inner selves that we can understand our fundamental purpose in this life and achieve the personal and professional goals we believe we were meant to achieve. Taken to its logical conclusion, this assumption means that we are, that we are most real 
when we present ourselves to the world as the people we most want to become. Our honest selves are the ones we choose and create. The, the ancients used to call this way of living the incurvatus inse, the inward curvature upon the self. It's like, let, let's look more and more inward. And they, they considered this a vice. Like, at its core, this is where sin and pride emerge from. It's, it's making self the center of our obsession where we understand who we are, and then we want to kind of draw that out and put that upon other people. But here it's been turned into a virtue. I mean, it says it in the ads, like self-obsession becomes the, the most selfless act of all, that we think that if we can look upon ourselves, that somehow this is going to bring about the blessing that we need and the blessing that the world needs. And this psalm turns that cultural assumption on its head. But this psalm says, don't, don't, don't look within yourself. Yes, be honest with where you are, but don't look upon yourself to find blessing. You must actually pull your gaze upward and outward to the God who is. And once you behold this transcendent, majestic Lord of creation, this one who has come and drawn near to us, this God who has saved us and delivered us, as we see him and our hearts begin to sing because we recognize more of who this God who is other than us and yet draws us into relationship with himself, as we see him, therein lies the blessing that we were designed for, the blessing that God has made us as human persons to experience and what it means to live in the way that, that he has called us to. What is this idea of blessing? I mean, this, this, this word, it shows up multiple times in this short psalm. Um, I feel like it's a word that gets kind of thrown around uh, almost a little aimlessly in our, our culture. So you think of, you know, when somebody sneezes, they're like, God bless you. What does that mean? So a few hundred years ago, found this very intriguing. A few hundred years ago, uh, Americans were convinced that, that when, you, when you sneezed, you actually shot your soul out of your body. It's like it went out of your mouth, your nostrils, or your pores, I don't know, but it's like it went out of your body, and it was in, in danger of being snatched up by the devil. And so your, your community around you, hopefully you sneeze in the presence of other people, uh, because they needed to say, God bless you, like have a blessing upon you so uh, your soul could like get back inside of you again and you weren't, um, I don't know, you didn't lose your soul forever because you sneezed. Um, and somehow this is, this is carried over into to language that we now use. I mean, our boys now are saying at five and three, you're like, bless you, bless you. And like, you have no idea. You, you think my, my soul just like shot out of my body. I'm like, well, some of my sneezes, I mean, maybe, maybe that's a fair assumption. They, they do sound that way walking in my, my father's shoes. Um, other places it shows up. You know, people are just like a, a general kind thing to say in society. Like, oh, bless you. Bless you, my child. Like, God bless you. And in parting, we're just kind of like, hey, well wishes. I want things to go well with you. Um, I just kind of, I, I think good thoughts in your direction. And I was like, yeah, I, I just, blessing upon you. Or a handful of years ago, I don't know how common this is anymore, but kind of the, the hashtag blessed. So you have this like irenic scene, you're on vacation or this meal in front of you or things are just kind of the way you want in that moment. And it's like, oh, this is a, you know, hashtag blessed moment. Uh, the, the, the comforts of life, things of the stars have kind of aligned at least for these, these few minutes or these few days. Um, you say, oh, this is, this is the blessed life. I'm kind of living the good life that I want. Um, 
Or I, 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 to this day, my 90-year-old grandpa, uh, when, when he's asked, hey, Grandpa, how you doing? It's like, I'm blessed. I'd have to die to get better. It's like, oh, that's, that's so good. Um, I, I'm just like, I don't feel like I can say that in my age yet, but someday, you know, it's going in the back pocket for, for later on. Uh, but what do we mean by this? Like, so often, it's just kind of this generic, positive sentiment. And things are like decent and good and, and happy and kind of the way they're supposed to be. The, the biblical concept of, of blessing, to bless someone, had so much more substance to it than the way we tend to use it in our, in our English word. It, it actually did something. Uh, it, was, it was marked by the relationship that it was within and, and, and defined by that, that dynamic that existed, but actually would put something in to the one who was blessed. And to understand how blessing is used throughout Scripture and even in this psalm, we have to understand the relational dynamic that exists between the blesser and the one receiving the blessing. Uh, it, it can change the meaning throughout Scripture. And we have this in some of our English words. You think of the word listen. Uh, if, 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 a, if a child is told to listen to a parent, well, the expectation is that it means to, to obey, to, to do what, what you've been told. Uh, if, it's, if it's two friends listening to one another, then, then maybe they're showing compassion and empathy. They're being attentive. They're kind of receiving uh, what the other person is saying. Uh, if, uh, if an entrepreneur is listening to the market, then they're trying to be attentive in a different way and, and be responsive to, like, what are the trends that we see? Where's the market opportunity? Uh, we want to be aware. When God listens to his people, he, he, he condescends, he moves toward us in a way that, uh, that he draws us out, he draws us in, and then responds based upon what we, uh, upon our, our request. Similar with blessing. We have to look at the relationship within which the blessing is happening. Because here we have, in these few verses, we have us blessing the Lord and we have God blessing us. But it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. When God blesses us, he's always putting something into us that we previously lacked, we didn't have before. And when we bless God, we're, we're beholding who he is and then right, rightly responding with praise and with worship. And so one way to, to define blessing is that when we bless, we review what's there and then we respond appropriately. For, for one to bless another, you review reality, consider what is in front of you, and then have a, an appropriate response that matches that. So when God looks at us, he, he sees our deficiency, he sees our need, he, he sees that he must meet that need with his blessing, with his presence, with his kindness and provision. But when we review who God is, we're reviewing his character, his excellency, his majesty, the ways in which he's worked in the past and in the present, how we long for him to work in the future, so to bless him, is the same as to say that we, we praise him, we worship him, we recognize him for who he is. Derek Kidner summarizes it this way. To bless God is to acknowledge gratefully what he is. But to bless man, God must make of him what he is not and give him what he has not. So here we are. A lot of talk about blessing at the final song of ascents. So what are these 15 psalms? They're brought together by the editor, and, and they're meant to, to kind of narrate the, the movement of this group of pilgrims, of Israelites, moving into the presence of God. 
So even the, the first psalm, psalm, Song of Ascents in uh, uh, Psalm 120, uh, they're beginning in, in, in much further regions. And as they move throughout, you can kind of trace even geographically, they're, they're getting closer. Their, their heart posture is getting closer. And it's again and again telling of how God is a, is a rescuing God. He's a delivering God. He moves toward his people. We're designed for this dependent relationship upon him. And then here we come to the final Song of Ascents arriving at the temple, arriving at the Holy of Holies, arriving in his presence. We might expect here that we're going to get kind of the, the content or the rationale for worship. Like, this is what we're supposed to do in our blessing. Or this is the reason for it. But really, the previous 14 Psalms, they, they've given us the reason for the blessing and for the praise. And now we just have this really simple, bare summons, this call to come and bless the Lord. But to have our hearts and our lives begin to, to reflect him more fully, to, to express more fully his worth and his excellency. This is the first thing I want us to see. Blessing God and being blessed by God is the pinnacle of the life we were made for. That to, to, to bless him, to respond to his blessing with, with hearts that, that worship him and acknowledge him rightly, and then to receive his blessing. This is what we're made for. This is, this, this is the high point. I mean, this is when these pilgrims who are journeying from faraway places, moving toward Jerusalem, toward the place where God said, this is where I've set up my presence. This is where I've come to meet with my people. They begin to feast with him. They, they, they celebrate. Now we are with our God. This is the life that we were designed for. So let's look at the text together. Psalm 134. Now verses 1 and 2, this is, this is the, the pilgrims coming to the temple and, and talking to the priests. They're talking to these servants of the Lord. It's like, hey, go, go do the thing that you're supposed to do. Look at me. It says, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. So one of the, the 12 tribes of Israel was, was devoted to this priestly work. So God said, I'm, I'm, I'm moving toward my people. I'm actually going to establish my presence in a very clear, manifest way. And this temple is constructed where, where, where God met with his people. This was mediated, though, by the priestly class. There were those who, who would go through the ritual washings. Uh, they, would, they would go through the purification rites. They would offer sacrifices. But they, then they would be able to, to move into the presence of God because the fundamental problem of humans in relationship to God is that we're, we're, we're marred by sin. We're marred by a rebellion that, that keeps us far away from the presence of God. And if we were to move toward his presence without sin being dealt with, then we would be killed on the spot. And so the priests had to, to offer these sacrifices so that they could mediate this kind presence of God to the people. They would experience his blessing. And so the pilgrims are saying, go, go, go do what your job description tells you you should do. Like, we're celebrating this. We want this on behalf of us. Worship the Lord and do it day and night. There was work to be done in the temple day and night. It looked a little bit different. There are often Levitical singers that were staying up at night and praising the, praising the Lord all throughout the night. But there was always work to be done. And it speaks to the holistic nature of lives of praise that are meant to, to express who this God is. To bless his name. 
Well, they're calling upon these servants of the Lord, these priests. But we read this psalm, and we're, we're, we're instructed by this psalm, not as those under the old covenant, not, not as those pilgrims who are going to a faraway place to, because God has set up his presence here in this one location. But we come as followers of Jesus. We come as, as those who, who recognize Jesus as the full and final sacrifice, as, as the one who, who is our high priest, which mediates the presence of God. I want us to, to see this in Hebrews chapter 7. You can follow along. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, starting verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's a way of saying it's like they got old and they died, so they couldn't do their job anymore. 24. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, and not man. When we come, when we we listen to this command in Psalm 134 to come, uh, we're not coming to weak, frail, sinful priests who have to make sacrifices for themselves and then then offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people. And they're going to die and then other ones are going to come in. You have this system you have to maintain so we can mediate the presence of God. We come before our great high priest, Jesus, who he himself was perfect, without blemish, innocent, living that unstained life that we were designed to. Sin did not keep him from the presence of God, but rather he brought the presence of God near to us. And then he offered up himself as that full and final sacrifice and said, come to me. Come to me to experience the presence of God. Come and and, and receive the blessing that is to be found in Jesus. And so we're told to come we come to the high priest, but we also come as those who've been made priests of God. No longer is it just this kind of subset of society, but, but through the cleansing of Jesus, through the presence of Jesus, through the work of Jesus. It tells us in 1 Peter 2.9 that we're made this royal priesthood. We're made this, those who are able to enter into the holy of holies, to the very presence of God by his spirit within us, and because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. There is nothing blocking us from entering into the presence of God, for Jesus has dealt with the sin that kept us from going near to him. So when we come, we don't, go, we don't come to a faraway place. We don't, we don't come to, to, to that spot over there on that mount to that temple and that holy of holies and that priestly class. Uh, we come in our daily lives. We, we come moment by moment. We come because 
The Holy Spirit has set up his residence within us such that we become the place where God establishes his presence because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done. And so we come, and we do it again and again. We come and we bless the Lord. We, we review who he is and what he's done, and we worship him. But also in verse 2, lift up your hands to the holy place. We, we lift up our hands. This is, this is less the idea of like, hey, the nuggets finally did it. Um, raise the hands in, in celebration. I don't know what you did. In, we probably got a lot of non-Nuggets fans. And hopefully the past several weeks were a persuasion in that direction. Um, but this is not like, hey, my favorite sports team just did whatever and I'm going to raise my hands. This is, this is more of a, of a child coming before a father. And so I'm, I'm in a place of, of dependence, of deaniness, of humility. I'm longing for you to work. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing that I'm, I'm submitted before you. I'm utterly dependent upon you for my life. I'm attentive to your presence. I need you. And so we are, we are instructed to come to lift our hands. This, this whole body posture coming before the Lord. The fullness of our lives. It even taps into this idea of, of worship. You know, we, we, we often think of worship, and that's, that's well, the singing that we do. It absolutely includes that. We need that. It's, you know, later, we're going to spend more time singing. But really, the, the word just means to ascribe worth to something or someone. What do we, what do we deem valuable in this life? What, what do we think is, is worthy of our attention and our affection to kind of give our, our life and our resources to, to orient ourselves toward and say, this, this is where life is found. This is where blessing is found. Those are the things that we actively worship in our daily lives. And we're instructed to come, to orient ourselves around the presence of God with the fullness of our lives, arms lifted high, independence and attentiveness and submission before this God and say, I need your blessing. That you, you are the God who is. You are the God who has made me. You are the God who gives life. I need your blessing. I need your nearness. I need your presence. This is the second thing I want us to see. To bless the Lord, we respond to his grace by offering our lives as an expression of his character and his worth. We are for the whole of our lives. Uh, this is not uh, to be brought to 90 minutes on a Sunday morning or to our gospel community on Tuesday nights or maybe five, 10 minutes in the morning. All of those are wonderful uh, touch points along the way to kind of re-engage you know, this directed attention toward the presence of God and who he is. Absolutely. The call in coming and offering our whole lives, it, it touches every moment. It touches every detail of our minds. And a lot of times we'll, we'll tell our boys, like, we want to so instill in them, God has given you a voice and God has given you strength. What are you going to do with those? How are you using your voice right now? What are you doing with your words? What are you speaking? Is it true? Is it good? Does it build up? Is it leading well? And your strength. What do you do? What do you do with the things that, that God has given you the ability to do? And as they're, they're young and they're growing and acquiring new things, but consider our lives, our voice, and our strength. How do we wield those as expressions of the character of God? To say that he's the worthy one. 
He, he is the one where life is found. He, he's the one who actually d- defines what humans are for. And as I, I submit myself to his voice, I'm able to put on display to those around me. This is the God who is. This is the God who has blessed me. This is the God that I'm, I'm made to bless in return. We respond to his grace by offering our lives as an expression of his character and worth. And it finds its way into every detail, every nook and cranny, every corner of our lives. But then the psalm turns in verse 3. And here we have, this would have been the the pilgrims coming before the priests in the temple and and saying, okay, do do your job, like do bless bless the Lord, like we long for his blessing and we want want you to do on behalf of us the thing that we, we have in our hearts to be done. And then in verse 3, it's the, the priest then giving a benediction, a blessing to, to those that are gathered. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. It, it, the, the language here, I feel like sometimes phrases can be used, maybe especially in the Psalms, I feel like throwaways. But let, let's see what the psalmist is actually saying. He who made the creator of heaven and earth, the totality of creation, ruling over the spiritual realm, the sovereign one, the transcendent God, the the uncreated one who is different than us, who has no need, who is not dependent, the one we look to outside of ourselves that we must bow the knee to, he who made heaven and earth, bless you from Zion, Jerusalem, uh, where the temple, where his, his presence was, was set up in the midst of his people. It, this transcendent God has, has become imminent. He's, he's drawn near. He's come toward us. Not because he saw something worthwhile in us, but because of, the, of who he is, an overflow of his character and of his kindness, of his, of his love, that he condescended to come near to us. That God would bless us is a humbling reality. It's a humbling reality. It actually... Uh, taps on the, the fact that we need his blessing. It, it taps on something that, it, that it, it is really wrong in our basic assumption as humans. Um, Christopher Watkin uh, wrote a phenomenal book, uh, came out last year, um, called Biblical Critical Theory. And it's basically saying hey, the Bible actually gives us a lens for all of reality. Let's take it as such. Let's read through the, the narrative and the storyline of Scripture and see how that instructs us and how we make sense of the world around us. And he said that the, the fundamental human condition is built upon merit. Uh, he, he describes it as the N-shaped curve. Lowercase n. Lowercase n. So we, we, we need to perform before God. We need to, to be good in front of other people. We need to kind of do the right kinds of things in order to get the blessing. We get the reward. We perform, receive the blessing. And his argument is, this is how every culture, every society, every religion operates apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. This attitude does not enjoy God, but uses him as a means or an instrument to attain some good that is outside him, like health or power. In both its religious and secular versions, the N-shaped dynamic moves from performance to prize. It is the default human setting and the default mode of our society. Achievement brings reward. 
and you do what you must to get what you want. Think about the spaces where we live life, our, our work, our families of origin, even in our, our most seemingly grace-filled relationships. This dynamic plays itself out. We must earn, we must merit, we must be enough, we must offer up the right things to get the blessing in return. Otherwise, we don't get the approval, we don't get the acceptance, we don't get the things that, that we need to be in relationship. Um, C.S. Lewis stumbled upon a few of his colleagues having a conversation. He's like, oh, what are you guys, what are, you, what are you all talking about? And they're like, well, we're, we're wondering the question of what, what makes Christianity different from other religions in the world? He said, oh, that's easy. Grace. It's the only philosophical system. It's the only religious system. It's the only way of being in the world which begins with not what humans can do to to get the stuff, to be enough, to have the right ethical framework, but begins with a God over the, the overflow and the abundance of his character and his kindness, moves toward humanity in his grace. He condescends to us, gives us what we don't deserve, but we, what we desperately need. And Watkin calls this the U-shaped curve, the inverse. God gives his grace, and we respond with gratitude. So there's a way even to read this psalm and say, oh, I've got I've to live this life that blesses the Lord so I can kind of secure his blessing. Kind of fall into this, you know, maybe prosperity theology or health and wealth understanding of, like, man, if, if I can just kind of get my life in order and, and do the right things so God likes me and is pleased with me, then I'll, I'll get the stuff that I really want. But it's not the way that life with God works. It's not the way that, that God tells us in Scripture that he relates to us. He moves toward us in his grace, and we respond with gratitude. Watkins says this, grace is a distinctive figure of the biblical world. The notion that righteousness and God's favor are not and cannot be earned revolutionizes the whole apparatus of religion. As opposed to salvation being earned, whether entirely or in part, and religious ethics being a code intended to help the religious observer to draw near to the deity and perhaps even earn its favor, within the Christian frame, salvation is a gift. And ethics is an exercise in gratitude. This is the third point I want us to see. I think I had it out of order. To receive the Lord's blessing, we live in harmony with him in accordance with the grace and truth of Jesus. Yes, there is a life marked by the nearness and the presence and the blessing of God that we're designed for. But it doesn't come about because we've figured it out and we've tried hard enough and we've rearranged our moral lives in such a way, it begins with receiving what Christ has done for us. We have this high priest who is drawn near. We have this God who has initiated sacrifice on our behalf. We have this God who has laid down his life and invited us into participating in his own. And the life of blessing, the life of harmony with God's voice then flows in gratitude from that place. There is such a temptation in all of us to figure out what's inside of us and then how do we self-improve, self-curate, and become enough? The audience might change. It could be the person who determines your raise. 
It could be your father. It could be your husband or wife. It could be your children. That could be your neighbors or a best friend or a particular group that you want to be a part of, that you want to be included in. The audience may change, but there's something in us that says, I need to become enough to then be accepted. And God says, what you long for, all of those are reflections, just like faint reflections of the longing that we have to be accepted by God. And the way that we enter into the presence of God is not by being enough and doing enough and figuring it out enough. But by admitting the need that we have, throwing up our hands, coming before him and saying, Jesus, I need your life. I I, I turn from my attempts and and all of my my striving that it just exhausts me to try uh, to, to be sufficient, to achieve finally. He says, no, come, raise up your hands and surrender and receive the life that's been purchased for you and to participate in this blessing that comes because God has blessed us. This is the life that we're designed for. This is the life that God has made us for, and it's the life that he invites us back into through Jesus. I want to read again from Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. This is the the, the high priest that we come to. This is the the Jesus who who beckons us to come, who, who extends the invitation to come, to name reality, to be honest before him, to allow the light of his presence, uh, to light up the shadowy parts of our lives, and to enter in and say, I I need him to cleanse me. I need his work on my behalf. I, I need to turn yet again to behold that he is the savior. He is the light of the world. He is where blessing is found. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.